Hello and thank you for downloading this podcast. My name is Kim Lee and I'm a child and adolescent psychotherapist. Now in this opening episode for the series, I want to talk about the relationship between our current circumstances, namely with COVID-19, and the effects upon the mental and emotional health of parents and their children. Now as this virus claims more and more lives each day, it's quite hard to imagine a time when we'll be able to re-engage with something which resembles normal life. Because we don't have a frame of reference for this experience, and let's face it, there was no real period of time in which we could prepare, we're having to adapt on the move, as it were. Now, I'm very struck by how communities have created collective opportunities for people to remain virtually connected and to try and import as many of those usual activities we were engaged with pre-COVID, albeit through screens. There's a strange irony here, because one of our concerns about our children has been that they spend an inordinate amount of time in front of screens. And now, look at us. We too are experiencing that dependency upon virtual contact and connectedness. The other thing I'm aware of is the way in which we're being encouraged to organise our time, get involved in activities, and all of which is perfectly reasonable and is something which may temporarily offset the current uncertainties. The emphasis, though, is about doing what we can in order to have some semblance of control and normality. Now, there's nothing wrong with this, but we also have to pay attention to how we are being And that is where focusing upon emotional and mental health is so very important. What is happening in the outside world is interacting with our internal worlds. And these are complex and unique systems that are formed in very early childhood. Certainly, we have the capacity to rationalise and make sense of what's happening as best we can. And we also have the ability to distract ourselves away from feelings of uncertainty, anxiety, low mood. But I'm inclined to think about how we pay attention to exactly those things, how we are able to organise and manage them. These things are dependent upon the way in which our internal worlds have been formed and what has shaped us to exist in our internal worlds. When psychoanalysis was in its early development, the concept of the internal world was something which was formed by Anna Freud and Melanie Klein, and developed latterly by others in their work with children. Now, whilst Klein and Freud didn't work together, and they certainly had very different views about things, one thing they agreed on was the nature and structure of the internal world in the way in which it was presented. They both saw, through the play of children, the way in which the internal world was structured, and they began to see that children could communicate their conflicts symbolically through representation in play. And they began to consider the origins of these representations and the ways in which they'd formed. Latterly, the famous child psychoanalyst and anthropologist John Bowlby developed a comprehensive system and way of understanding the ways in which children and parents form attachments and the numerous processes which influence the way in which the child forms either a secure or insecure attachment type. Now, the invisible transmission between parents and their children at a very early age, informs the child's internal world and creates what Bowlby described as an internal working model. This, in simple terms, is a kind of template from which children experience themselves, themselves in relation to others, 
and others in relation to them. And this then influences their capacity for and the qualities within relational and interpersonal behaviours. Now, as you'll probably imagine, this is a very big subject and I'm simply referring to a few points. Now, I'm sure that many of you will have heard the term worldview as a way of describing the way in which we as individuals have our own perspectives and filters through which we understand the world around us. And these are informed by the way in which our internal worlds have been constructed. Now, in this sense, we're talking about an unconscious internal environment in which psychological mechanisms, beliefs, psycho-emotional and behavioural patterns and their reactions reside. In my work with patients, my focus is almost exclusively upon the internal world, which informs and strongly influences the existence of this child in their external world. It's complex discovery, and there are no shortcuts. I always ask myself, what is it that I can't see, which may lay, lay beneath the child's presentation and difficulties? What is it that I don't know? And how did this child come to a point of such distress in their life? The answers are almost always within the internal world. The way in which the child has learned to adapt and to survive and the ways in which it has been shown how to do that by parents who themselves may have their own conflicts, confusion and difficulties within their internal worlds. One of the things I talk about is the way in which we as adults use common sense or at least that which we believe to be common sense. Children on the other hand use uncommon sense and this is the world that we as child and adolescent psychotherapists spend a great deal of time in. So back to the present day our external world is a very seemingly unsafe place and this has caused us to retreat into our homes in a way which keeps us physically safe but in an environment where we are constrained. This enforced lifestyle inevitably impact upon the quality of family relationships and individual mental health. In those families where there are pre-existing difficulties, I'm seeing an amplification of many symptomatic things. And in some ways, I think that this is what's motivated me to produce these podcasts. Now, moving on, I want to talk about the internal world some more and also to look at psycho-emotional states and stress arousal and to introduce some basic neuroscientific principles and the model I have created that you can learn about in the next episode. I want to talk now about two concepts that are particularly important in thinking about the internal world. And then I want to talk about the relationship between this and brain function. The two concepts are organization and disorganization and how these particular states influence our thoughts, feelings, sensations and actions and how when these are stimulated and perhaps placed under stress, our internal worlds might become disorganized, perhaps even chaotic. This gives rise to stress reactions, which, as we know, may well trigger anxiety, 
depression and other psychological phenomena. Now, whilst we were able to manage isolated experiences of stress and normally process them, for some people, the capacity to manage cumulative stress becomes eroded and they may start to break down. So a state of internal disorganization, whilst manageable for short periods and very often triggered inadvertently by events, is not something which can be endured over a long period of time. But here's the conundrum. We are living through cumulative stress with no apparent end in sight and very few periods of respite apart from those we might create for ourselves. So how do we find organization? How do we create a balance within ourselves which prevents internal confusion between sensations, emotions, thoughts and actions? The Soothe Technique is a six-step model which helps us to create calm organization in our internal worlds and to take us away from preoccupation with those things which create stress and disorganization. The word Soothe is an acronym for Stop, Observe, Organize, Think, Hopefulness and Enjoyment. A stop means whatever it is you're doing, just stop, press the pause button and stop for a moment. Observe means that in this paused state, take a look around, but look inside you to see what's happening. Organize is to do with identifying and separating sensations, emotions, thoughts and actions. Think is concerned with a course of action that you will take. Hopefulness is about engaging with something rather than someone, which reminds you of that which you uniquely experience as hopeful. Enjoyment is concerned with engaging with those things which you know to be pleasurable and which arouse and maintain a soothing and reassuring state. A little more theory, but this time we're looking at the psychoneurological. In the 1960s, a scientist called Paul McLean developed a concept known as the triune brain system. And as the word suggests, he proposed that three regions of the brain, amongst others, were highly significant in the ways that our reactions, responses, thinking, feeling and arousal systems operated individually and together. The first part of the structure he referred to as the primitive or reptilian brain and this is responsible for the most basic of our survival functions such as breathing, heart rate, body temperature and orientation in space. Now this is probably the most consistently predominant part of the brain as it will override all other brain functions in order to keep the body alive. So for example if you decide to hold your breath which is a prefrontal cortex initiated action, you find that as carbon dioxide builds up in your bloodstream, the primitive part of your brain is going to want to take over and make you breathe again. And although it's possible to train yourself to hold your breath for longer, the primitive brain will always win in order to keep you alive. The primitive brain responds not only to internal function and dangers, 
but perceived and real external functions and dangers too. Now the second structure he referred to as the limbic system or paleo-mammalian complex. This is sometimes referred to as the emotional brain as it's the reactive part of us that responds to the primitive brain. And the limbic system is a constellation of brain structures that is located roughly in the middle of the brain and is often referred to as the center for emotional responsiveness, memory function, motivation, memory formation and integration and the mechanisms which involve keeping ourselves safe. Finally, the neocortex, uh, which was formerly referred to as the neomammalian complex, is the third part of the triune structure. And in a sense, this is what we might refer to as our smart brain, the executive part of the system that is responsible for all higher-order conscious activities such as language, abstract thought, imagination and creativity. It also houses much of what we refer to as the memory. Now what's important here is that there is a relationship between all three parts and it is inevitable that one part will interact with another which may then trigger another. Now these patterns of reaction when repeated again and again create what are called neural pathways which see us having the same emotional, cognitive and behavioural outcomes. A simple example. I treated an adolescent who was suffering from an acute anxiety disorder and this was characterised by social and relational withdrawal. He had an inability to regulate his emotional states and rather concerning depression and separation anxiety dis uh, ensued. Now beneath this constellation of symptoms there had been powerful cumulative traumatic experiences which had damaged his internal world considerably. Things worsened and he couldn't leave the house or be apart from his mother, not without experiencing the most painful distress. And even the mere suggestion of leaving the house would trigger overwhelming, paralyzing fear and distress. Essentially, what had happened was that the repeated exposure to those things which made him fearful had created not just unconscious associations, but real changes in the pathways between different parts of the brain so that anything experienced as a dangerous trigger, and this is where the primitive brain is so important, created chaos within his limbic system and his capacity to reason and self-soothe was overwhelmed. But what is important here is to recognize that every time this pattern was repeated, the neural pathways, which can be likened in some respects to a computer program, were reinforced and became stronger. So in effect, his reactions had become hardwired. Once again, we are in the territory of organization and disorganization within the internal world and seeing how the brain can maintain these states when triggered. So returning to our current circumstances, there are real and perceived dangers around us, which we are constantly reminded of. Keep your distance and wash your hands. The implication is that if you don't pay attention to these things, you could contract a virus that might kill you. You might also pass it on to someone else and they may die. These are very primitive messages which understandably activate the primitive part of the brain. Now if you want evidence of this, next time you enter a supermarket, observe your own behaviour when in the proximity of others. 
and also observe their behaviour towards you. Now, whilst many of us may well be able to reason and regulate the impulse, this is not always the case. A little boy who I treat explained to me that he was worried that his grandfather might catch the virus and die. And this was because he was picking up post that had been delivered each day and that maybe one of the letters might have the virus on it. Now, although this child already has a predisposing difficulty with anxiety, it nonetheless reminds us that children are strongly influenced by the messages they receive and the behaviour of others. It's also worth mentioning that when we try and reassure children that this illness tends to affect the old and those who are already unwell, and that if younger people catch it they get better, remember that the child will probably know older people, some of whom may be already ill, and some of whom may be relatives. Thank you for listening to this podcast, and in the next one we will practice the Soothe technique together. And once learned, it's something you can do any time and more than once daily. Consider it as a means of either preparing for part of your day, or you can use it at those times when you become aware that you are experiencing anxiety and or stress. To do this exercise, you'll need about 10 minutes, a comfortable chair, and preferably find a place to be on your own. Please join me for the next episode.